0: Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 749th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have a couple who connects people to the cycles and rhythms of growing food. We're talking with Mayan, Chelsea, and Scotty Karras about ritual farming. Mayan and Scotty are husband and wife team living in community at Sunsong Community in Bernardsville, North Carolina. Mayan is a mother, earth steward, flower grower, and belly feeder, while Scotty is a farmer, orchardist, and community weaver. Together, they co-founded Soul Gardens, an organization that hosts programs and workshops that connect people to the earth, and the source of their nourishment soul gardens offers a seven month long once a week ritual farming immersion that immerses adults in deep care for the earth growing and preserving food working together in community and connecting to the cycles and rhythm of the seasons welcome to the show today mayan and scotty are you ready to rock
1: yeah yeah
0: Awesome. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today?
1: Sure. Yeah, I can start and share that I grew up, I just loved food always, but I never had a connection to how it was grown. And I studied a sociology of food culture in college and just was so fascinated with how people gathered around food. It seemed so central to society into humanity and, and to everyday life. Yeah, it's so central and I just realized, wow, I know nothing about how food is grown. And so I upon graduating college got really excited about learning how to grow food, but I felt really confused about how to do that and how to start. And I was really blessed to get accepted into the Allegheny Mountain Institute, which is a 18 month long fellowship, program in Highland County, Virginia, that leads people into growing food, building community. And so I got a really deep immersion in that program. And that was a big blessing for me because it started this path of my life. That was about 14 years ago. So I've been growing a bunch of food since then, just starting gardens where I can. And it's opened up this whole path for me of attending the earth and sharing that with other people. And yeah, I just love feeding people. I love preserving food. So a lot
0: of us come to this from a very early age, but it sounds to me like you as an adult jumped into the food scene and growing food.
1: Yeah, I was in the food scene for like, I worked at restaurant kitchens and was really into food from an early age. And it wasn't really until I was 22 that I started getting my hands in the dirt Mm -hmm. and just found such a deep peace gardening that it was like, oh, this is what I need to be doing with my life.
0: Wow. I was going to ask you what kind of propelled that forward. And you just shared it, getting your hands in the dirt. Yeah. Nice. Scotty?
2: Yeah, I grew up in the suburbs of Baltimore, Maryland, and my parents did have a little vegetable garden, and I would help them out as a kid and mulch and weed and plant and all that kind of stuff. And as I grew older, though, I was more interested in friends and left the garden and getting my hands in the dirt and really started gardening and farming again as a response to climate change and things I was learning at Penn State University, where I attended college and started getting into sustainability. I studied engineering and was part of Engineers for a Sustainable World there. Oh, nice. Building anaerobic digesters. And really? <laughs> and methane gas digesters. And I was interested in all forms of sustainability. And I noticed with the growing food and the gardening, like that really lit me up more than anything else. More than alternative energy or natural building, I just felt this ancestral connection with farming. So I followed that and led me into permaculture and herbalism and just connecting with the natural world around me through gardening and then later through adventures in the forest. And I became a wilderness therapist, field guide, taking teens out into the woods and really passion and my purpose in connecting people to the earth. Yeah. And
0: it sounds like you both, from what I know of your story yet. Yeah. Sounds like you both plugged in exactly where you're supposed to be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, So
0: fast forward to a few years ago and you decide to buy some property.
2: Yeah. We grouped together with three other friends. So there are five of us, the founding members of our community. And we grouped together so that we could share resources, live together, raise kids together and grow food together. Mm -hmm. And, and create a new way of living that was different from the nuclear family model or some of the ways we were raised. And we purchased the piece of land here in the Asheville area and started a community and it's been really beautiful to see the power that we have when we work together.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I've said for years that competition is really eating up and killing the planet. Collaboration and cooperation is where we need to be going. And so it sounds to me like you're doing a lot of collaboration.
1: Yeah, we're learning a lot about collaboration for sure. (laughs) Living together and gardening together. We have lots of meetings and yeah, it's been a really beautiful journey to learn how to live together.
0: Nice. So if I were to drive up your driveway, um, what would I see? Share with me a bit about what your space farm community looks like.
2: Yeah. So we have at the bottom of our land, a pole barn, and that's our main community gathering area. There's a amphibian pond there that in the springtime, really the late winter just comes alive with wood frogs. Thousands of them descend from the forest and mate in our pond. And it sounds like a bunch of ducks chortling or something. It's really
0: loud. Wow. Interesting you should say that. We're near Asheville as well. And when we moved here, we discovered a pond that had been filled in. So we started digging it out last April. Uh-huh. And by May, there were frogs living in it. So we stopped digging because we didn't want to disturb the frogs. Uh-huh. But that was a new experience for me. And having come from the desert, right. there's nothing really like that in the desert. So how cool is that?
2: Yeah, a lot of biodiversity here already and we definitely try to tend the land for to promote more biodiversity mm-hmm. like you're doing with your pond and down in that area there's also like a flat fire pit area where we mm-hmm. got uphill we took an old abandoned hillside and created an orchard there it was overgrown with weeds and vines and slowly over time we we chopped and dropped and put all the carbon on contour and planted trees. And now it's a two year old orchard and one day it'll be bearing a bunch of fruit for us.
0: Nice. And How long have you been on the property?
2: It's been four and a half years. So I count growing season. So this will be our fifth growing season. Nice. And our main growing space is about a half acre field. And it's divided into what we named three sections first the closest to the house which is up at the top of the property is we call the terraces because they're a series of flat spaces and slopes and flat spaces and slopes and we inherited the land like that it was the terraces were already built because oh the, nice the previous owner was a farmer and he grew tomatoes among other things and sold at the North Asheville market and we use that area it, for our perennials we have flowers Herbs and a lot of berries, and everything from raspberries, blackberries, strawberries, currants, gooseberries, blackcap raspberries, all kinds of berries up there. Wow!
0: You grown okay. any mulberries?
2: We have mulberries too. The kind of hillside next to that has mulberries and persimmon trees because oh, nice. To kind of interplant things and companion plant and just really have as many different species as possible because in the summertime the place is alive with insects, hummingbirds, butterflies, all kinds of pollinators. We really found that increasing over the years and on either side of the field are little creeks with forested hedgy areas and (coughs) birds love it in there so there's often birds flying across and mingling and we like that because they'll eat some of the pest insects in the garden stuff and the next area of our garden, we call middle earth, it's in the middle. And that's where we grow a lot of our kitchen vegetables, like our cucumbers and our greens and, and tomatoes and all kinds of stuff we grow there. And we also interplant it with perennials. That's where our asparagus and rhubarb and nettle patch and various things like that are. And uh, then we have our main field and there we grow our staple crops. And our corn, our beans, our squash. Potatoes. Are you growing any grains? Grains. Yeah. Corn is our main grain. We are interested in growing wheat, but we haven't gotten there yet. But we grow a lot of corn. We have a few five gallon buckets of corn stashed away since from last season. And yeah, that lower field area is where we use to grow food that we preserve over the winter time. Nice. Larger quantities. We're still eating. Corn and potatoes and squash from last year. And often we have sweet potatoes still at this time, although our sweet potatoes didn't do so well last year. <laughs> cow peas we still have that we're living on. But wow. cool to grow as much of our food as possible, uh, how,
0: through the- how much of your food are you actually growing?
1: Depends on the time of year and the, during the growing season, when it's bumping, I'll look at my plate and I'll, wow, a hundred percent of this is from the garden. Yes. Except the salt and the olive oil or something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would say like three quarters of our food comes from the garden. It's really an abundant place.
0: Nice. Yeah. So you Have a program that you offer around ritual farming. What is that?
1: Yeah, so Soul Gardens Immersion is a program. It happens, it takes place starting at the end of March and goes until the end of October. And it's a journey through the growing season. So folks come every Tuesday for the whole day, and it's a group that signs up. So we're like in the process of accepting applications right now. And there's a group of about 10 to 12 people that come for the whole growing season and come every Tuesday and we learn how to grow food. So we tend that field that Scotty was just describing to you all together and learn about soil science and food preservation and Um, really open our eyes to paying attention to what is happening on the earth every week because gosh the earth is just always changing and we use the garden and the earth as a mirror to look at ourselves and look at our own soul's growth and where we're at in our lives and so we use gardening as a metaphor to learn about ourselves and to get to know ourselves in community and so when we plant seeds we're planting seeds of intention in our lives when we're weeding what are we weeding out that's not serving us anymore when we're harvesting what are we integrating in our lives what can we really harvest that's alive in our world when the garden is dying back into the earth it's what what do we need to let go of what ready to return to the earth and the earth just has such potent medicine for us. And we organize the program to share that medicine with people. And yeah, it's been really beautiful to see how people respond to it and how people can really lean into the medicine of the earth and the find a sense of belonging on the earth through this lens.
0: This program of yours goes way beyond gardening then.
1: Yes. (laughs) Mm Yeah, it's a gardening program and it's soul gardening as well. It's like growing food and our growing our souls. And we try, yeah, like Scotty said, we try to make it fun. We sing songs, we dance, we throw flowers at each other, laugh a lot. So it's a really sweet time. And a part of the program actually is going to some service work. So we go to Cherokee once a month. Our, we have some friends there, a Cherokee elder that has a garden there, a four acre garden where she grows her ancestral corn and beans. And we go once a month and help her in her garden and weed it for her, help her plant the corn, clean out her root cellar, basically whatever she needs, you know, as a way to be in reciprocity with the indigenous people and be in connection with them because the Cherokee people are native to the land that we live and we grow the corn seeds that they've shared with us. And that's been really beautiful for us. And yeah, it feels really good to be in connection with them and to offer them a gift of our presence in their field.
0: Wow. How many seasons have you done this program?
2: Three
1: so far. This upcoming one will be mm-hmm. our fourth. Yeah.
0: Fourth. Very good. And along the way, and how many, actually, how many people normally do you have in the program each year?
1: Uh, about eight to 12 people. This year eight. we're expecting 12.
0: Nice. And Somewhere along the way, something happened. Something happened with a connection with one of your students that you're working with. And it said to you, oh my gosh, this is exactly the reason I'm doing this. Do you have one of those?
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's been several just to see people come alive and see a plant growing like, wow, I've never seen that before. Like their Mm -hmm. eyes just open up a plant that they've eaten their whole life to see it grown for the first time. And yeah, one thing comes to mind is a participant of Soul Gardens last year who has ancestors indigenous to Central America where the corn plant was domesticated, where it was gifted to the Mayan people. And she had never grown corn before. Wow. She got to plant the seeds, tend the plants, harvest it, we nixtamalized the corn, which is a process of cooking it with hardwood ashes to make tortillas. And then we cooked the tortillas on the fire. And she got to have this whole full spectrum experience of the corn. And it awoke in her a memory of her ancestors, of her ancestors' life tending the corn and really awoke for her a memory of her grandfather, who was no longer alive, who used to make tortillas for her. Wow. And- Just to see the tenderness and the sweetness in her heart that awoke, it was so meaningful to witness and just to hold space for that reconnection of these seeds that are hers. They're her people's seeds. And we've gotten so disconnected from our ancestral practices, our ancestral seeds with all of the effects of colonization and immigration, moving around and, you know, just to see somebody reconnect with their ancestral seeds. And oh, I was so heartwarming and so beautiful. And I really feel like it helped her on her path and her life. Mm-hmm. And I saw her just feel more grounded in her body and on the earth. And that can contribute so much beauty to someone's life.
0: And in, in the script I have in front of me, you talk about soul journeys. Sounds to me like that's what you're talking about when you talk about soul journeys, right? Uh, A rediscovery of ourselves.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Part of our program does focus on where we're coming from and our ancestral lineages and who we are as people and what our purpose is and how we can find meaning. And for me and my journey, like spending time connecting to the earth facilitated me finding my meaning and purpose with building this community and having this program with soul gardens and sharing nature connection with people. And what we're trying, what we're doing is facilitating that journey for other people by having that regular time to be outside, be together, be in the garden, and hold space for people's growth and transformation and healing in the context of the garden.
0: And so there's soul journeys, but then there's also soil Does soil play a part of this?
2: Absolutely. I teach a lot of classes on soil science, and I always start them by saying everything that we have comes from the soil, our seeds, our foods. And then out of that comes like our culture and our music and our art. And if we lose connection to the soil, like we lose connection to our roots, we lose connection to who we really are as people and why we're here. We try to leave the soil better than we found it every year. And through various practices, really aligning with the biology that's already there. We don't have to do too much as people. We just need to leave space for life to thrive. And you look at the soil in some of these old growth forests in the mountains of Western North Carolina, and it's rich black soil from the top down. And people didn't do anything to make that happen. So nature
0: just happened.
2: We try to just mimic nature. And we are causing disturbance when we're gardening and everything, but we try to mimic nature and let nature do her work.
0: Nice. And I'm sitting here looking at a term that I've never heard before, cultural topsoil.
2: Yeah. So cultural topsoil to me means it's like the layers, soil has these different layers and traditional cultures would have those same layers that are built upon each other. Every year, you might sing a same song to the spring equinox. And that might be the same, that might be the only time you that year that you sing that song. And these different rituals and practices build cultural topsoil where there's a group of people who know these songs, they know these rituals, they know what things happening on the earth correspond to those rituals. Like, the blooming of the apples or what, and so there's various layers that are built on top of each other that make the cultural topsoil. And I consider myself having European ancestry, Greek, Italian, and British, like a cultural orphan. Like I don't have a connection to a lot of the cultural practices that my ancestors had. So part of what we're doing is being part of a, a creation of a new culture. And granted, that might take decades and generations, and we may not even see the fruits of that in our lifetimes. But how can we begin to belong to a place? We're here in Western North Carolina. How can we be like, form the relationships to the place and to the people that have lived here for many generations so that we can integrate ourselves here? And how can we, yeah, build that cultural topsoil that will? nourish future generations
0: nice and you're doing that inside of a community and this is a a community of I think you said there was five of you correct
1: there's five of us that bought the land together but at this point there's about 11 of us living here
0: oh wow tell me about what it's like living and farming in community
1: Oh, it's all kinds of things. Just like most things in life, it has a lot of beauty. We support each other. We hold space for each other. We help unload heavy things from the car with each other and just have a general, very supportive network. We're co-raising children together. Yeah, it's very supportive. And it's also challenging. There's lots of Things to talk about. People have feelings. It's we're learning how to do it. It's not. It's in our ancestral DNA to live together and to be mm-hmm. in community. And we're also we've come. It's been several generations since we've lived in that way. And we're also coming from very different places, from different families. We have different ways of doing things, and so we're learning how to come together and make sacrifices, and sometimes not get our way and. But I'd say in general, it's very meaningful, contributes to a deep sense of belonging to have a family of people to come home to. Mm-hmm. Um, sing a lot together, singing is a big part of our community. And that's one of the ways that kind of nurture the heart between us all. And yeah, but it's a, it's a beautiful journey for sure. And it's great, especially with gardening. We couldn't have a, as big of a garden as we have if we didn't have that many people tending it. So we have community work days every Monday and on those days we have meetings, we fix anything in the house that's needing fixing, we build the tool shed or whatever kind of projects like that and we also tend the garden together and so that's the day when we plant a huge field of sweet potatoes or a huge like many rows of potatoes and that allows us to do it together to not feel like the burden is on one person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we get to share in the joy of it and also in the weight of it.
0: Wow. And how do you handle, I'm sure with 11 people, there's breakdowns, Mm -hmm. communication mishaps. How do you handle that?
1: We've been learning a lot about conflict resolution. We use nonviolent communication as Mm -hmm. a way to communicate, especially during conflict we're learning a lot about empathy and compassion. And yeah, we have, we have conflict for sure. And we have lots of meetings when those conflicts arrive and arise. And we also have mediation within each, like a lot of us are skilled in mediation and have different skills in that way. And so we've learned okay, so two people are having a conflict, one person can help them mediate that conflict. And how can we help them see? how the other one is feeling and empathy really is the part of it. Like how can we have empathy for the other person's experience? It really diffuses so much of the anger and frustration. So yeah, we've been learning a lot about empathy and conflict resolution.
0: I'll bet. Wow. (laughs) And sun song is the name of your community. What do you have to offer us in the listening community out here?
2: We host various events. And everything from workshops with some of our friends in Cherokee come out here and teach us about their plants and culture and crafts, and to song circles, to grief rituals. One of our community members is a grief ceremony facilitator. And yeah, so we host things from time to time here at the community and Really want to also be a like a pillar or an example for other people to start intentional communities and just show that's possible and that it's actually like really fun.
0: Building community. Love it. And I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might've learned from it.
1: Yeah, In the garden, there's so many failures all the time. Mm -hmm. Little ones, big ones. And what comes to my mind is when we were, this past growing season, we grew a lot of sweet potatoes. We made sweet potato slips and then we planted them many rows. And in the past, we've gotten really hefty sweet potato harvests and it feeds us a lot, big amount of food. And this year, the deer were eating the sweet potato greens, and we, the greens just couldn't replenish themselves enough to photosynthesize to make big sweet potatoes. So we didn't get very much of a sweet potato harvest and many hours down the drain into a tiny basket of sweet potatoes. It was not as big of a failure as it could have been because we do our best to diversify our crops. So we had a substantial potato harvest and winter squash harvest and other similar type food plants. But yeah, we learned a lot about just making sure that we have enough diversity in the garden and not relying on the sweet potatoes to feed us. And the garden has so many lessons on failure and how to just be at peace with, okay, we just put a lot of effort into that and we didn't get a harvest. and that's okay. I can be peaceful about that. And so we're learning how to not focus so much on our failures also, and really celebrate the successes with our human tendency towards the negativity bias. Um, it can feel really heavy to have put so much energy into the sweet potatoes and not have gotten the harvest. And it's, oh, wait, yeah. we're talking about that. I'm in my mind complaining about that instead of thinking like, wow, we got a huge potato harvest and a huge squash harvest. And so learning how to rewire our brains towards celebrating those successes and also honoring the failures. Okay. We learned a lot from that experience.
0: Yeah. I planted my first garden in 1975. Uh And through 2022 I grew gardens and fairly successfully, sometimes really successfully. Rarely did I have a hiccup until I moved here. So that was in Phoenix, Arizona, where I was growing food. And so I planted my first garden here when we arrived in April and it was a miserable failure well,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> and I had a friend of mine last summer remind me, oh, your first garden is your worst garden. And you just have to sit with that. And not get discouraged and keep moving forward.
1: Keep going.
0: Yeah. And just step past the challenges that we have. What do you consider your biggest success?
1: There's
2: all kinds of successes every year. And certainly growing a majority of our own food is a big success. But I would Mm -hmm. say the biggest success that we've had on this garden is actually more about the ripple effect. Actually, about mm. that, we come together as a group of people. It's not just one person. And it's almost like rewriting the story of farming as suffering or like hard or challenging. Yeah, there's a lot of work involved, but when we come together and do it together, it's actually joyful and it's actually deeply connective and it's actually integrated into. Our lives and so many conversations, so many transformational like aha moments for people come through uh, sitting side-by-side weeding or hoeing or transplanting or whatever it is. And that like connection to the earth and that connection to each other and that like building of a web of relationships, I would say is our biggest
1: success.
0: Nice. And what drives you?
1: For me, I'd say it's the grief of the state of the world and the disconnection from my people's ancestral land and the loss of the topsoil. There's just so much grief for me. And I notice, yeah, soul gardens and my path in the garden is a response to that grief. It is being in the garden for me. It's a soothing balm to my heart for all of that tenderness that I feel. And it also drives me to want to share it with people to create a more beautiful world so that there are gardens for our children to play in and there are trees that aren't cut down and so yeah I'd say it's that yeah that tenderness and that feeling into the loss and then just wanting to create something in response to that create something Mm
0: -hmm. climate grief it's a thing
1: Yeah, yeah it's very real
0: yeah how does that impact you Scotty
2: yeah. Similar. Like when I feel like I didn't really start becoming aware of the situation that our world is in until my late teens or early twenties. And that was like an angsty time for me. I had all kinds of feelings come up and I wanted to save the world and change it all. And eventually I realized like that I'm just one person with a certain amount of capacity and gardening helped transform some of that anger at the injustice in the world and that sadness. Into something that I can actually do and have an impact with gardening and teaching. And that, like, those feelings drive me. And on the flip side of that, I'd be lying if I said pleasure doesn't drive me because, you know, that bowl of food that we eat that's all grown on the land, like that tastes so delicious, that's so nutritious, health and wellness are big driving forces for me. And I want that for everybody. So that's why. We try to share the gardening and share our food and share it with the people around us. And there's also just that pleasure and satisfaction of being in the garden, of eating that strawberry, of tasting the first, the fresh fruit that you've been waiting for years for the tree to finally bear. Yeah. Nice. moments oh, of a pleasure. It definitely drive me.
0: Yeah. Nice. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why?
2: Oh, I love this book by Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. It's been totally transformational to me. And I draw a lot of, I guess she put words to a lot of things that I was feeling, but didn't quite understand. And she really articulates the need for a relationship between people and plants and people in the lands that we are. And she does weave in a lot of some of the the grief for the world, how things have changed and how things have been for the indigenous people who lived here and experienced the settler colonialism. And she sprinkles it with seeds of hope and stories of people making a difference and creating new, rekindling these relationships with the natural world in beautiful ways. And I just really love anything by Robin Wall Kimmerer, all her talks and podcasts and essays and, book, and the book. Nice.
0: That's our most called out book, Oh. <laughs> which is good. It, that's the, there's a lot of cultural oomph behind that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So well, I love books. I could plug another one too, if you want. Oh, please. I love this book, Trees of Power. Oh, but I'm forgetting the author right now. Trees of Power. It highlights 10 trees that have all these different uses ecologically and for human beings. Uh-huh. It just goes into depth of all the uses for these trees. They talk about hickory, ash, oak, hazelnut, mulberry, elderberry, serviceberry. One of them was alder and just go really into depth into these 10 trees,
0: mm-hmm.
2: how to grow them, how to cultivate them, how to propagate them. And Wow! I Tree. knew there
0: was—I knew there was a reason I wanted a second book from you. I'm really interested in this topic, and yeah. I see you just found the book. What's who's the author?
2: The author is Akiva Silver. It looks like this. Oh yes. And uh, yeah, ten essential arboreal allies. The gist is also like we, as people, have been in a co in a relationship with trees since the beginning of time even if you talk about our evolution from the forest. And so to remember that trees have kept us alive and we need to re-ally ourselves with trees. And often a lot of food does come, our food does come from fields and farming. And that has a certain impact on the soil. Yeah. A lot of cultures traditionally got more of their calories or many of their calories from tree crops. And, and that potentially has a less of an impact on the soil and, you know, trees perennial, you don't have to disturb the soil to plant them or grow
0: them. I run a fruit tree program in Phoenix. I've been doing it for 24 years and I've been growing fruit trees in Phoenix since 1975. And they're my favorite thing to plant. You yeah. plant them once and you get food for decades.
2: Yeah. So, you yeah. Know, just
0: take care of the soil underneath them and you're golden.
2: Yeah. So a so. power, wonderful book
0: what final piece of advice do you have for our listeners
1: yeah i was just thinking about people wanting to start a garden or and feeling that like fear of starting it's okay to start small it's okay to just have a couple plants it's okay to fail like you're going to fail the, something will happen in the garden that doesn't work out and just that's an opportunity to learn that's actually how we learn and then to enjoy the blossoming of the tomato and watch it like open to open our eyes to the earth and what's happening and to allow ourselves to really enjoy it and to receive the sort of nervous system relaxation that it is to witness a plant grow so yeah start small okay to make mistakes and enjoy the ride.
0: Amen to that. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Mayan and Scotty. It was great chatting with you.
1: Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. It's been fun.
0: How can our listeners find you?
1: Yeah, our website is soulgardenslove.org. And on Instagram, you can find us at soulgardenslove and on Facebook under Soul Gardens. And yeah, we'd love to stay in touch. We've got a newsletter folks can sign up for.
0: Nice. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash soul gardens.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org.